You're listening to the Mormon Artist Podcast, a podcast covering the world of Mormon arts and examining the intersection between faith and creativity. For more Mormon arts news and interviews, please visit mormonartist.net. Welcome to the Mormon Artist Podcast. Today we're speaking with calligrapher Joan Layton Merrill. Hi, Joan. Hi. It's good to be here. Joan Layton Merrill graduated from Brigham Young University, where she studied art. She has taught calligraphy for about 20 years at community colleges, art galleries, and for calligraphy guilds across the United States. She's been on the faculty of five international lettering conferences and on the board of directors of the International Association for the Calligraphic Arts for several years, including four as president. Her work has been included in a number of publications, including Letter Arts Review. You can find her website at letterdesignstudio.com. She currently resides with her family in Jefferson City, Missouri. Well, Joan, today you're not in Jefferson City, Missouri. Today you're in Utah. What's the occasion? Well, one reason I'm here is to meet with other members of the Utah Calligraphic Artists who are sponsoring an international conference in 2017, and I am co-directing that conference. Oh, interesting. Where is that conference being held? It's going to be at Weber State University. Okay. They're usually people from all over the country and occasionally from Australia and Japan and Europe. Wow. So I don't know a lot about calligraphy. I'm guessing a lot of our listeners don't. Um, It's one of those arts that seems like it has a pretty long tradition, but it's not something that you would necessarily major in at a university. So how did you get into the craft and and learn it? Um, I first got introduced to it in high school with a commercial art class. He just, the teacher did an alphabet on the board and said, go buy a speedball book and try this out, uh, which wasn't a lot of help, but it was fun, and I'd try things off and on. But then later... Many years later, when I had a fourth kid at home and was looking for something to do, I mm-hmm. got back into it. And then I discovered calligraphy guilds, which are groups around the country that bring in people to teach workshops. So I learned a lot through calligraphy guilds. Hmm. Um, in North Carolina, there was a place called Camp Cheerio where they often had week-long workshops. And then I found out about these international conferences. So it's almost all done through workshops. Once in a while, you can find like an evening class or something. But other than that, there may be two places in the country that actually have degrees that relate. Mm-hmm. So how long does it take to develop the craft? And is there something that you have to do to be part of the guild other than register? Uh, I was nervous about that when I first found a guild, but most of them are happy to take anybody with any interest. So there's not like a requirement there is a group in England that invites you if you're good enough. But mm-hmm. um, one of the good things about calligraphy, in a sense, is that most people aren't familiar with it enough to know if you're really good. So when you start, people go, oh, that's really pretty. <laughs> and that's encouraging. And then you can keep going. So there's 
there's a lot of levels, and most people don't even know there's a professional level mm-hmm. and of lettering arts. Uh, I'm not at the level of those who do it all the time full time, mm-hmm. uh, but definitely uh, good enough that I do do work that I'd consider professional work in most cases. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Um, so you've developed a particular technique called paper casting that you've taught at workshops and conferences. What is that, and how did you develop that technique? Well, basically, I make a mold and make paper pulp and cast it. At one point, I was introduced to dry embossing, where you just push the paper down into a stencil to get it raised, and it's really pretty, but you can't see it from very far away. Mm-hmm. And so when I heard about paper casting, oh, probably about 20 years ago, it was a popular craft where people used cookie molds and things. And um, I heard about that and I tried using it for a project in a class I was taking. And being a calligrapher, almost everything I do, I end up thinking, well, how can I incorporate letters into this? You know, mm-hmm. I've kind of got back into oil painting and I'm, how can I put letters into this? And anyway, I couldn't find any good way when I looked up methods of paper casting, nothing seemed to work well for letters. So I finally just invented a method that I've been developing for over 20 years now, where I cut molds out of polymer clay with the lettering. And then I just make the paper pulp in a blender and basically press it down into the mold. And then you have your words right made out of paper. So it's kind of a white on white, but it can be quite deep. So it doesn't disappear like embossing and looks pretty elegant. Hmm. So what are some of the pieces that you've that you've done with it or some of the things that you've done with it? Um, one of the most popular ones is a, like just a simple a saying you've probably heard William Morris is saying that have nothing in your houses you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so I've just done like that as a saying and I'll cast it with various pale shades of different colors and things. So a lot of what I've done is kind of simple ones of a quote. But I've also done a few, like I, I have a, a tower. It's Well, the height is the width of my oven because you have to bake the mold. So it's like about 23 inches high with four sides. And it has lettering. Like one side talks has a scripture, I'm the light and the life of the world. And then at the top has a sun. And one side is about, this is my work and my glory. And it has a temple. And, and, and then it's sewn together, these four sides, to make a tower. Hmm. Um, and then I had someone build me a nice wooden base for it. So that's that's one of the, the more ambitious things that I've done. I've done a few three-dimensional bowls and things, but most of them have been flat. Um, some I've done a nativity that has a picture of Joseph, Mary, and the baby, but then there's writing, like it's Mary's robe comes along. There's scriptures about Mary and Jesus and stuff like that. So it's kind of combining a picture and and words in it, but it's all cast in, in white paper. So how long have you been teaching that technique? Um, I think the, the first major time I taught it was at a conference in 2001 in Boston. I was almost ready to give it up just because some of the molds I'd made were so difficult to cast, it was a real pain. Mm-hmm. But when I got asked to teach, then I sort of fired me back up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So every time I've taught at a major conference, I usually come up with another new idea and a new method because I really get thinking about it some more. Well, let's get into some of your specific works. You've submitted twice to the church's international art competition and have been accepted both times. So let's talk about those. 
your work that you submitted in 2002 was called Woman of God. And um, I believe you said, we were talking about this earlier, you said it's made from acrylic ink, gouache, colored pencil, and it's on canvas. Um, And just to describe it to our listeners, it's a, um, a piece that is really colorful. It has um, some blues and purples and reds and yellows and there's kind of a, the yellow is kind of in a streak diagonally down the middle of the piece and then on the opposite corners there are these um, blues and purples that kind of form um, two spheres and then there's text layered all throughout the piece, some large, some very small. Um, and you drew from the proclamation to the world and also declarations by the Relief Society and quotations from several church presidents and women's leaders. So tell me about the techniques you used and then the texts that you worked with and kind of the symbols in the piece. Um, okay, I started it, I worked on unstretched canvas, and I started with just background washes because I wanted to make sure I got that overall look with the light coming through. Mm-hmm. So I did, I used watered-down acrylics and acrylic inks to just put a wash on, and um, then I just kind of started writing, and I'm not real experienced with brushes for lettering, and so I was doing this with metal pens on the canvas. Um, I was surprised to find that I even could make it work with a pointed pen because I wasn't sure that would happen. But um, I basically just took text I wanted and just I would pick the one that seemed the most important to me at the time and just start just start going and do mm-hmm. like a big column of writing and then I'd pick the next one and just where did I think it needed. So it's kind of all step by step. Um, and then... Um, there were some places with large writing where I would lay down the lettering and then then um, use a rag or something to mop some of it off so it's kind of transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, there's gold leaf kind of going through a line in the middle to be part of that light that comes through. Some of the writing is sideways. Like I know, that, remember on the upper left, there's black, mm-hmm. very small pointed pen. That's actually you, you'd have to tilt your head to read it. Most of the quotes are done so that um, you can read enough of it. You can't necessarily read everything on it easily, but either it's repeated or the important points I wanted can be read. So if you wanted to, you could stand there and spend a long time finding all sorts of things you could read, or you can just glance at it and pick up bits and pieces. The, the really large lettering that covers the whole thing came about at the end when I decided it was too scattered hmm. and I wanted to tie it all together. So instead, some people think that was first, but that's actually last. I actually designed and transferred the really large letters and then just darkened all around them. So how did you transfer those on to the, the um, piece? Seral transfer paper. That is kind of like carbon paper. Oh, but okay. It comes with different colors and things. And so you just lay it underneath and trace over it and it leaves in this case yellow a a little yellow line that can rub off Hmm. and then I just went in with my paint I just watered down very watery the the different inks or paints and darkened around the outside of all the letters 
And some of it I went over several times until it was enough that you could really see those words. Mm-hmm. I've always loved that quote about she opens windows of truth. So that was one that to me tied the whole thing together uh, in thematically as well as actually visually. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of things I wanted to talk about in that work. The spheres and the corners, I think in, in the artist's statement or in the statement that they had at the ch- in the church's exhibit, it said that it was representing pre-mortal and earth life moving upward to eternal life. So was that was that something that you had kind of figured out the composition of when you started that you're going to put in those those spheres like that? Um, you know, I, I don't really remember. Mm-hmm. I remember wanting to make sure I had that light coming through mm-hmm. and that it kind of represented earth. So. So probably, yes. My memory is not what it used to be. (laughs) Well, this was, it was 2002, so this was some time ago. But, um, okay, that's interesting. And in the process of choosing the texts, was that something that you started out with, knowing what you're going to use or kind of just picked a few at a Um, time as as you thought of them or were inspired by them? A lot of the pieces I've done like this, I... I kind of feel like it's sort of like my scripture study. I'll get a topic in mind, and I'll just go look up all the things that I can find. Or in this case, I'd kind of been collecting things for some time. Mm-hmm. And I'd done some other pieces that had to do with things about women and being women of God. And so I already had kind of a pile. Um, and so I'll search out a whole bunch of things, and then when I sit down to work on it, I'll just flip through that whole pile and see what strikes me right now. Sometimes I'll start out with one or two things in mind that I know are going to be the main things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll just start with, well, today this one really strikes me. I'll just start writing it. Hmm. Okay. So, and then in 2012, you did a work um, that was in the church's show called All Things Denote There is a God. And um, the technique was similar, used acrylic ink, gouache, colored pencil on canvas, but it's a little bit different in that the text forms a a more clear picture with a tree and a ravine or a canyon that a river is running through. And then at the top, um, there's it's a long piece um, vertically. And at the top, there's a, a yellow sun. Um, and so the text that you have going around the perimeter is all things to note there is a god. Yea, even the earth and all things that are upon the face of it, which is from Alma 30, 44 mm-hmm. in the Book of Mormon. And then there are other little bits of text within the picture. So there's some in the tree and some that make up the river. And um, and then the sun, it's um, the text is, I am the light of the world. Um, so tell me about making that piece. That one, that one was planned from the beginning based on that scripture because I was really struck by that all things denote there is a God and so I wanted it to be more representational so you saw the things mm-hmm. what things are you talking about so that the tree has scriptures about tree and root and I am the true vine and the water is all scriptures about water the water of life I shall be unto you like rain on a thirsty garden um so that that was what I started from was that concept that I wanted there to be rocks and trees and water and sun and and actually then have those scriptures written on those things. So it's so it's uh, 
kind of a visual representation of what that scripture's saying. So it was a little more planned, I, you know, from the beginning, that this would be a picture with the tree and whatever in it. So I did mm-hmm. that basically first, and then just started writing on some places. Some places I didn't like, and I would wash off the gouache, or I would paint over and do again, and you know, until I got it all to work. But um, it was probably more planned. That the writing around the outside wasn't part of the plan originally, but I felt like it really needed that to tie it in, and I, I liked having that scripture right there around the edge, mm-hmm. too. I, I guess just to help, help make sure people were getting what it meant. I guess. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's funny because it's funny hearing the process because kind of like the other piece, you you said you put the the larger text on last, but people thought you put it on first. I definitely thought that was the case. And then in this piece, um, I just assumed that the perimeter was something, if if not something that you painted first, something that was kind of the first idea that you're working with, because that's the title of the piece and that's the text that you're working with. That's interesting to hear about the creative process. It actually made it tricky because I was had to get really close to one of the edges of the canvas I was working on mm-hmm. since I hadn't really planned on it. So how do you choose the text that you're going to work with? It depends on what sort of piece, but a lot of time that's just what I start from. Is mm-hmm. I start from a text or an idea like like I really like this scripture and what other things might go with it. Um, a lot of times in the calligraphic community, they'll talk about you should be working with text that means something to you, and I find a lot of the time that's the scriptures, and I just I don't feel like there are a lot of other things that are as as deep or as as well written as the scriptures are. So I tend to use them a lot. Or sometimes it might be like I'd, I'd like to do something that would make good wedding presents. So what like, what some text or scripture that would really be meaningful to somebody getting married, just that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. um, But a lot of times, like I said, with the women of God, I just end up with this big pile. I've printed out, and I just start looking through to see what what strikes me at the time as, as being really meaningful or important or helpful. Mm-hmm. Okay, so another project that you've been working on is a book that you and your two sisters wrote and illustrated. It's called The Olive Tree, and it's being published by Cedar Fort. So um, tell me what the book is about, how the how you came to collaborate on that project together. Okay, it, that's been really a lot of fun. My older, well, my sister Christine Graham is a writer, and so she had this idea several years ago to, to um, do something with this story from Jacob 5, because the olive trees mentioned a lot in the scriptures, but Jacob 5 that has most of it is really kind of long and complicated and repetitious in places because of, you know, the Hebrew thing where they repeat, whatever. But anyway, she had this idea to do a book of it, and she asked me to try writing some of it out in calligraphy because she was thinking of an art book. And I did some samples, and then I don't know how long went by. She tried again, and finally, um, all of a sudden, we found ourselves with a book contract. So Christine... Hmm did the adaptation and my sister Carol did paintings for the illustration and then I had to really fairly quickly actually letter up the entire text. Oh wow. Um, yeah, it happened a lot faster than we expected when it finally happened. And I had never worked with 
an art director and an editor, and so mm-hmm. that was a very different thing for me. Usually, I'm doing a piece, and I can sit down and do a layout and think, oh, well, I should maybe emphasize these words, and it would balance better if I made this line look bigger, you know, or whatever. Um, but I not only had to deal with the parts the art director decided we should emphasize, I mean, the editor would decide which phrases we should emphasize, and then they decided which where to divide the pages, and then the art director had things that we need to do and so I had to take all of what they wanted and managed to do the pages that all went together and looked enough alike so it was the layout was the new challenge for me working with all of that stuff um, so you know hopefully it works I haven't seen the finished book yet in hand I've only seen online pictures of it so um, I hope it works um, we learned so much I'm sure if we did it over again today we'd, we'd do better but that's normal Mm-hmm. Um, but we did certainly learn a lot working, and, and Carol's paintings are wonderful. It's been pretty exciting to see her do that. So what are some uh, things that you had to take into consideration collaborating with other artists? Uh, well, one of the things was when I first did those trials a few years ago, I sent them to Carol, and she used colors from my pages, the, the paper and the lettering, to do to start painting and then when we got doing it I could no longer get the paper I had used so the paper was a different color so we were trying she was working in Utah and I was working in Missouri and we wanted to make sure the colors I used went with the colors she used Uh so and your computer you're scanning and looking on your computer really aren't true to color very well so so we did a little mailing back and forth of some paint samples and paper samples and um, so that was one of the things, and I, in fact, I pasted up printouts of her paintings on the wall and looked at them with each page because I wanted each of my pages to go with painting opposite it um, because they they liked the idea of having the color variation, but I wanted to make sure they were the, you know, kind of went with each page. So that was new too, and hopefully that worked. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when is the book being published? Uh, it comes out in March, so pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really neat. I mean, you've done several things um, with the Book of Mormon text. This is a topic I've been thinking a lot about, um, the Book of Mormon text and kind of the aesthetics of the Book of Mormon. A lot of people talk about the historicity of the Book of Mormon, DNA evidence and that sort of thing, and and have things to say about that. Um, but there was an interview where Richard Dawkins, it's kind of notorious where Richard Dawkins and Brandon Flowers of The Killers were on a Norwegian talk show. And um, one of the things that Richard Dawkins said that actually bothered me more than than any of the shots that he took at um, the authenticity of the Book of Mormon was that he said that it was, it has no poetry, it has no beauty in it. That's what he said about the Book of Mormon. And I um, I thought that was really interesting. Of course, he he then acknowledged that he hadn't actually read it. So, oh. <laughs> I mean, so I could, you know, we could say a lot about that. But what was interesting about that was that it wasn't an idea that was original to him. He was getting a lot of his ideas from things that he'd heard from other people. And ever since, I think ever since, I don't know what the origin of this, but I think ever since um, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, talked about the Book of Mormon in a rather disparaging way, saying that it's chloroform in print 
and that if you took all out all of the and it came to passes that you'd have nothing There'd more than a pamphlet. pamphlet. There's I think there's been this kind of prevailing idea among non-Mormons and I've even heard it among some some Mormons which I which I find a little more I don't know concerning that the Book of Mormon isn't beautiful mm-hmm. and um, and I, I've heard it from from scholars even scholars who teach the Book of Mormon um, even scholars who I heard it um, from a Catholic scholar who really likes the Book of Mormon actually he thinks it's a really very Christ-centered text but he's he makes his concession he says but it's you know it's not beautiful. Anyway, so I just, what do you have to say about that? I mean, you've worked with the Book of Mormon um, texts in your your artwork. So I was just oh, wondering if you had any thoughts on that. That's interesting. Yeah, and I taught Book of Mormon in seminary last year. Um, wow, I disagree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's some beautiful things, but that does, that is interesting. I've I have actually tried a few years ago, I tried to gather some Mormon calligraphers online and and do some Book of Mormon projects that could maybe build to an exhibit, and even if it was online, we didn't didn't get very far, Um, but I, wow, that's just, that's interesting, I, that makes me want to try again and do some exhibits of some beautiful things from the Book of Mormon. I, I have often thought, if if I had millions of dollars, I would get a group together and do something like the St. John's Bible, where we even just took, like, the Book of Mosiah and did a gorgeous book of it. Um, so what is the St. John's Bible? Um, the St. John's Bible is the first handwritten, completely handwritten and illuminated Bible in 600 years. Hmm. And it was sponsored by the monks at, at St. John's in Minnesota. Uh, it's it's huge, seven volumes. It took a whole bunch of calligraphers, and they brought in artists and uh, put together this absolutely gorgeous Bible. Um, and one reason they did it is because the Benedictine monks have this, uh, I can't remember the name, I'm sorry, a way of reading that basically means to read slowly and ponder what you're reading. Hmm. And they felt like a hand-lettered Bible that slows down your reading so you appreciate the scriptures as you read it. Um, and it's a beautiful work. It it took years, but uh, when, so that was when a, I, that was a collaboration I, among calligraphers, professional yes. calligraphers. So some yes. of them Donald would take, Jackson. I'm sorry. So some of sorry, I'm just trying to clarify. So some of them would take a passage well, and work on it, and then others would take another passage and work on it. Well, like that. they actually they actually designed the whole book. Donald Jackson, who's a scribe to the Queen of England, was in charge. And they planned it all out. They worked on a style of writing that everyone was trained to write the same. It just took, I think it was about 10 scribes, and they would assign them out pages. And um, then they brought in someone who did illustrations of birds and butterflies. And the hard part was this all went through committees at at St. John's. Mm -hmm. So they had to design design by committee. But um, it's it's very organized and... uh, it's not like different people did different kinds of things. Okay. It just took that many people to, to do it. And you can't, there are several um, facsimiles around that you can see and you can also see things online. But it's it, it's done somewhat like a medieval Bible in that it was all done on on parchment with illuminations and yet it's also got a lot of modern touches to it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it would be really fun to figure out how to do something from the Book of Mormon that way, decide what would you do modern. I actually, I have, I have a Book of Mormon project I started years ago that's been on the back burner for many years now that to make one more, or a piece, excerpts from the Book of Mormon, excuse me, to take just some bits from the Book of Mormon, do them like a, like the scriptures would have been in the Americas. Because in Europe, there's medieval Bibles. Mm-hmm. But in the Americas, we don't have much of anything from hundreds of years ago because the Catholics burned all the codexes they could find because they thought they were heathen. So there's very, very few, but they hmm. they had bark paper or co- accordion fold codexes. And so that's probably what, if people had had the scriptures here 600 years ago, that's what the Book of Mormon would have been, would have been an accordion book on bark paper with this um, beautiful greens and blues and outlined pictures and things. And and I've been tracking down the, the right kinds of papers and things to try and, and just do a project like that. But, you know, maybe what Alma's scriptures were like that he carried around and sort of an American version of a medieval scripture. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it'll ever happen or not, but someday it might. Well, that's interesting. That that did veer a little bit from your question, but no. Well, that's very interesting, huh? So, um, so what would you imagine an illuminated Book of Mormon would look like? You mentioned Saint John's. What would be some unique touches to it? I'm picturing um, I'm picturing um, sago lilies and in in the borders and Deseret Alphabet somewhere included in there. Oh, what good ideas. Good ideas. I think I think those are great. I, I don't know. I, I guess haven't thought far enough, maybe, what, what kind of touches could be used. Mm-hmm. But I think using things from church history would be really neat and different things that have to do with Latin America or North and South America. You know, we don't know for sure where was what. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be interesting to pick things that would go along with the stories. You know, what could you... What could you think of to illuminate that would tie in with, say, the the barges coming across in the Book of Ether and oceans and things? You know, the glowing stones. The glowing stones. There you go. There's your there's your gold leaf on gum ammoniac or something, (laughs) or what is it? Palladium. That's more even. That's whiter. So yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of options. It could be pretty neat. But doing the whole book would be a huge undertaking. The St. John's Bible, I think, probably cost $7 million or $10 million or something wow. by the time they were done. But but it could be a piece of it, you know, maybe mm-hmm. just selected selected favorite pieces from the Book of Mormon or something. Hmm. And there are quite a few good Mormon calligraphers out there. If we could get them together. Okay, so my last question is, what are you working on right now or what do you have coming up? Um, well, I've hit the time of year when all of a sudden I have paying clients. So mm-hmm. that's just certificates and diplomas and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm going to be doing for the next couple of months. I'm trying to think of what are in my notes that I really want to do next. I do have three started canvases rolled up in the corner. <laughs> See if I ever get back to them. What are the texts that you're working with? Um, well, one of them is basically about Christ, and 
I was partly experimenting with writing really large and then writing other smaller things over it in a little bit different way. One of them I want to do uh, kind of about the spirit and feeling the spirit in it. I want the canvas to be mostly white and the lettering just almost just peeking out here and there from sort of shades of off-white. I have no idea how that will work. And I haven't really collected what I wanted to say. It'll probably be a lot of quotes about revelation and things. It sounds like you have a lot to work on. Well, if I could do all the ideas that came through my head, I could have a quite a pile of stuff done, but then mm-hmm. life intervenes. Right. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Mormon Artist Podcast. For more episodes, please visit mormonartist.net.